Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Welcome to this podcast of the National Stroke Education Center and thestrokejourney.com. I'm Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician and neurointensivist at the University of Cincinnati. I'm here today with two colleagues and good friends, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Neurocritical Care, Dr. Kyle Walsh, and Associate Professor of Neurology and Neurocritical Care and Neurophysiology and Epilepsy, uh, Dr. Brandon Foreman. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here and welcome. I am excited to talk to you guys about hemorrhagic strokes in the ICU and how we manage them. Dr. Walsh, you'll bring your emergency medicine background to this conversation too. You guys ready to get started? Absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks for having us. So the title of today's podcast is really what lessons have you guys learned in your different care areas for managing the patient with an acute intracerebral hemorrhage? Dr. Walsh, they land in your lap in the ED all the time. Why don't you give us a start? Well, I think that to, to begin with, you know, there is no, we often say there's no clinically proven treatment for ICH, right? And so much of what we do could be thought of as more kind of ancillary care, supportive care, for example, control of blood pressure, reversal of anticoagulation. And I think that because of that, sometimes there isn't necessarily the focus that there is with ischemic stroke of bringing the patient, having them imaged. Oftentimes the imaging happens quickly because we don't know clinically if it is a hemorrhage or ischemic stroke until we get the imaging. But then once that's done and the, the imaging has been done, there isn't necessarily that same time pressure to do some of those interventions that do exist. Um, whereas with ischemic stroke, we see more of that time pressure with TPA. So I guess just starting out, that's one thing that I would encourage clinicians to think about is um, you know still trying to hit those time points and, and, and look for those treatable factors, which currently come down to mostly blood pressure control and reversal of anticoagulation. Dr. Foreman? Well, when they get to me, it's sort of a, you know, a continuation of what's happening in the acute setting, which is trying to make sure that the hemorrhage doesn't expand, which most often occurs within that first, usually six hours or so. And so, you know, by the time they've gotten to me, presumably that hemorrhage is stable as long as we're continuing to maintain that good blood pressure control, looking for any targets for hemostasis. And then we've got to worry about the things that happen in the next hours and days, sometimes even longer, which are you know, evolving secondary brain injuries, the other organs that are involved by potentially the same processes like underlying hypertension that may rear their head when someone's got an injury like this. So cardiac ischemia, acute kidney injury, and all of those sorts of things. And so you know, I think one of the things that you learn taking care of ICH patients is that they're, A, all very, very different. So this is not a uniform disease by any means. And I think we kind of all have a gestalt about that. But you have to be very aware of all of these different individualized factors that are going to potentially impact how this patient's doing. Uh, and that's everything from the localization of the lesion, because I'm a neurologist, I have to say that, to you know the other kind of comorbidities that, uh, as I mentioned, rear their head. And so navigating all that, and then more importantly, knowing where the patient's going to be going as you talk to their family and try to describe what to expect, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned is really, really challenging. Patients never fail to surprise me. So let me ask you guys a question. You both touched on blood pressure control um, in both the uh, ultra-early setting, Dr. Walsh and, and Dr. Foreman, once they get to the ICU as well. And there's some controversy around this, right? Um, let's address that for our listeners. 
there's a sweet spot. If someone comes in with a blood pressure of 220, we need to bring that down if they have an active ICH. If they have a blood pressure uh, that we start bringing down and then we cross that 120 mark and now we're at 100 and maybe now we're at 90, um, it's possible that we may have done something bad, right? Where do you guys target your interventions? So typically the blood pressure target is, is systolic of 140. Sometimes if the patient is starting particularly high, like a systolic greater than 220 to start with, then I think a little higher goal around like 160 is, um, is also reasonable. But it is important to think about lowering that blood pressure in the acute setting. Um, as Dr. Foreman mentioned, thinking about hematoma expansion, which is one of the, you know, many of the, the factors associated with ICH outcomes, such as patient age, baseline ICH volume, ICH location, those are all things that we can't change once they occur, right? But helping or trying to prevent that hematoma expansion is something that we can intervene on. But in general, I would say the majority of patients now, to summarize, have a systolic goal of less, around 140. I agree there is a risk, though, in dropping the patient too low, and that's something that needs to be monitored. The risk in the literature seem to be, you know, kind of related to from a practical standpoint, mostly kidney injury. You know, it's not as clear of a, a direct risk to the brain, although I think clinically we all have the gestalt that you can certainly precipitate things like watershed infarction or um, other uh, pathology because these patients, particularly with a really high blood pressure, have shifted their autoregulatory capacity over time. And so by lowering the blood pressure, you might be kind of falling below their lower limits of autoregulation. And we just don't know that for a given patient. There's not a great way to measure that kind of in standard clinical care. So the, there's theoretical harm to the brain. There's uh, certainly some potential risk based on the literature to the kidneys. But in general, the risk of hematoma expansion is so much higher that it makes sense to certainly lower the blood pressure. You know, less than 160 tends to be what we do clinically. Less than 140, I think, literature says is reasonably safe to do for most patients. And, you know, I think you still have to individualize things. But in general, if you shoot for that up front, the limitation of hemorrhage expansion is really the key. That's the most important thing. So just get it down, whatever you have to do. We'll touch on hemorrhage expansion in a second. But prior to that, when you see a patient come in um, and they have their ICH, do you actually have a gut in that first few hours about how that patient's going to do? Do you have anything that you're willing to rely on from a prognostic standpoint, or do you delay your prognostics when you're talking to families? From my standpoint, I think I tend to have a gestalt that's not always right. right. It's a challenge because there's so many things that occur in those days after ICH. And so I've been, I think, consistently... I guess, conservative in saying, we don't know, but there's a chance. And, you know, that this person may have better recovery than I'm giving them credit for. Uh, and some of that comes from emerging literature from other disease processes, such as TBI, where we know that these folks have recovery for, you know, not only weeks, but months after their injury. Uh, and if you look at patients, you know, particularly with disorders of consciousness, for instance, we're recognizing increasingly that those folks, given time, six months, a year, uh, have striking recovery that you wouldn't expect. And so I think, uh, you know, from my standpoint, yeah, I look at the 90-year-old the with a pontine hemorrhage and say, gosh, that's not going to go well, and I think that's appropriate. But when you talk about sort of that middle-aged patient population, the 60-year-old with a thalamic ICH that's spilled over maybe into the mid-branch, spilled into the ventricle, man, that's a really tough thing to prognosticate. And I think the best thing to do is withhold <laughs> up front. And then after a couple of days, as things settle down, maybe you have a better idea. But even then being, I think, humble in our ability to predict, which 
we know we don't do a great job at from a lot of the literature that's come out really since the 90s. Yeah, and I think from the emergency department standpoint, um, in general, the vast majority of these patients should have aggressive care, we'll often say for like the first 24 hours, so beyond their ED course. Now, of course, there are individual patient situations, you know, the particularly large hemorrhage where there's already herniation or an elderly patient, a patient who has another terminal condition, for example, right, where the, the family says, you know, we really, you know, we're already considering hospice and now this has happened, that type of thing. But, you know, for, for the majority of patients, again, I think from the ED standpoint, continuing that aggressive care throughout the ED course, the first 24 hours, and not being, being cautious of not inappropriately using, for example, the ICH score um, for early withdrawal of care, I think is also an important point to make. And there's actually been literature that's come out um, that's been published since, you know, some of the initial papers about the ICH score talking about that um, and about concern of, for example, that score in particular being used to justify early withdrawal of care. Yeah, just to clarify for our listeners, I think we're talking about Dr. Hemphill's work um, and the ICH score and how there is this self-fulfilling prophecy and the, the higher the score, the less likely patients were to do well retrospectively. So people have inappropriately applied that to prospective assessments of outcome um, and the prognostics have been skewed. I agree. I, I think that's something that we need to avoid, although it's really hard when you see uh, an ICH in a patient who's obtunded. You often uh, are, at least I have often leaned towards wondering whether or not that patient really has a chance. And then when the patient's family piles on. Sometimes it's difficult to pull back and, and keep hope up for people. But I agree. Uh, and Brandon, you mentioned it. You know, we, we aren't super good in the, in the first 24 to 72 hours for sure. Let's talk about hemorrhagic expansion. So we know that blood pressure is a big deal and we know that anticoagulation is a big deal. Anything else that you guys look for besides those two? Anything coming down the pipeline that we're looking at from a biomarker standpoint or basic science standpoint, imaging even? So from you know, an imaging standpoint, there'll be, there's a number of papers out there, for example, talking about the spot sign. So looking at the CTA, the spot sign extravagation or contrast, which would be a sign of ongoing hematoma expansion. From an uh, intervention kind of clinical trial standpoint, there is the FASTEST trial, which is just now starting at some sites. We are looking at, uh, it's an NIH-funded trial to a clinical trial of recombinant factor 7A versus placebo within the first two hours from last known normal. So we've done this. Right? We did fast, didn't we? And then we did faster. And now we have fastest. Talk to us about the evolution. This seems like a very common thing in stroke, right? If it doesn't work, we're going to try harder to make it work in specific patients. Are we well, there? and in this case, based on the, the initial or earlier studies that you mentioned, there was um, a signal that you know, that there may be benefit even earlier, right? So the idea that the majority of hematoma expansion occurs quite early, maybe even in the first two to three hours. So if the recombinant factor 70 is given within that two-hour from last known normal, that two-hour threshold, then um, you know the patients would be more likely to benefit. And just to clarify for our listeners who may not be uh, familiar with this uh, the study and, and the technique, the idea is you take a patient who has an ICH on arrival and then you give them a contrast bolus during CT angiography, right? Um, is it CT angiography or is it, or is it just contrast CT? So for fastest, it would just be based on non-contrast CT. Yeah, so there's no other imaging criteria. No other imaging criteria. So we find a spot sign in there. And the presumption is with a spot sign, you have active extravasation going on. And those patients might be a better target for some sort of medication to stop bleeding. And in this case, we're talking about factor seven. Right. I think I confused the topic. So fastest, the clinical trial is not actually using the spot sign. I was mentioning the spot sign as one of the you know radiographic signs of hematoma expansion, but the fastest clinical trial is not looking at that specifically. It's oh. just treating ICH patients more generally within two hours of last known normal. I learned something today. Thanks a lot. That's actually great. So we're going to be doing non-contrasted CTs inside two hours considering treatment with that. Exactly. Seven. Yeah. Well, what's the next trial going to be called? 
Like the most fastest? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would fit with our name. Yeah, right? Um, all right. So the management of the hemorrhagic stroke in the ED we talked about, we come upstairs to the ICU. Renal failure is an issue. Other end organ damage from a long-standing history of hypertension, which tends to exist in most of these patients. What else do you look for? Um, do you worry about things like seizures? Yeah, I, yeah, I feel like it's a leading question. Um, I, I do. Um, seizures, so yeah, seizures are common uh, in at least the literature that's described uh, in patients with intracerebral hemorrhage, particularly with you know rates that are quoted at 30% or so, which is very, very high. That said, it's probably not quite that high in clinical practice. There's selection bias in the literature, but nonetheless, it happens. And when it happens, it's usually related to the fact that there is blood in the brain, which the brain doesn't like, meaning that the seizures are going to come from the area that's involved in the hemorrhage. And, you know, when you're talking about low bar hemorrhage, uh, you know, a right frontal lesion, for instance, you may not see anything. The vast majority of these seizures, as it turns out, are non-convulsive. And so I have a really low threshold in folks who, uh, you know, whose exam doesn't really match up with their imaging or who have, you know, altered mental status, to use the phrase kind of loosely, for hooking them up to continuous CG and trying to get resistance for whether or not they're having some kind of abnormality, whether it's seizures, whether it's these abnormal periodic and rhythmic patterns that we tend to come across that uh, may or may not indicate irritability or may or may not be seizures themselves. So there's a lot of nuance there that really requires, I think, you know, hooking someone up, watching them over some time to get a better sense for what's happening. You know, we know what's happening structurally. What's happening functionally? What's happening electrically? Um, so that's, that's certainly a big worry. In addition, you've got things like, you know, hydrocephalus mass effect, increased intracranial pressure. Uh, and I think one of the things that we don't maybe do a great job about in a standardized way is monitoring folks for some of those things. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the things that I you know, have had the privilege to study and we've moved into the clinical space are uh, electrical abnormalities that are much slower than seizures. Uh, there's something called spreading depolarizations. And, you know, as it turns out, these are extraordinarily common in stroke, including hemorrhagic stroke, and it's not something we routinely monitor. But they may have an impact on hemorrhage expansion or uh, perihematomal uh, edema or infarct. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of room to monitor, not just for seizures, but a lot of the other intracranial pathology we end up probably not monitoring uh, as, as systematically as we do for the other disease processes like traumatic brain injury or subarachnoid hemorrhage. I think the answer is generally continuous EEG, right? Just hook them up to EEG. Yeah, just, to, right? All right, Dr. Walsh, you are a translational scientist, as far as I understand your career so far. And this is a, a field that you work pretty deeply in, in ICH. When we were talking before this, you had mentioned that you think of this less as an event and more as a sort of continuation or continuum of disease. Can, can you expound on that a little bit? Sure. So with ICH, clearly there's the hemorrhage that occurs initially. So that initial stroke event, and that causes you know damage to the brain, causes initial deficits. But then following that, there's other factors, some of which we already mentioned, like hematoma expansion. But then I would say the other major one being inflammation. So inflammation and edema that forms around the hemorrhage and also um, then is effect really systemically throughout the body. And that's a topic of research currently, including research that I've been involved with. So specifically looking at those inflammatory processes to try to understand them more at the molecular level and, and look for targets that could be, you know, targets for intervention to, broadly speaking, kind of block the harmful inflammation and promote the more reparative inflammation that, uh, that we think exists. And so, yeah, so that inflammation is, although it's a, it's a topic of research currently, it is a potential future area of, of therapeutics. Um, and, uh, you know, time will tell. Thank you. 
Gentlemen, any uh, parting key messages for our listeners about the way you conceptualize or treat intracerebral hemorrhages in the acute setting or in the ICU? I think the, the main point that I would leave our listeners with is just kind of what I mentioned at the beginning, which is thinking about ICH, you know, because we haven't had like acute specific treatments to give the patient. Um, again, I think sometimes it's thought of differently than ischemic stroke, but really moving forward, particularly if, for example, the fastest trial shows a, a positive outcome and we're giving something recombinant factor 7A or in the future, other hemostatic agents, um, ultimately ICH, I think, will fall more in line with ischemic stroke with regard to, you know, door to C door to needle and things like that. So we're not there yet, but I think it's important to kind of have that in mind on the, the horizon potentially. It would certainly be nice to have some tools in our, our armamentarium to go after this disease when we see it rather than just trying to control blood pressure and hoping for the best. Dr. Foreman? I think there's a lot of hope on the horizon for those kind of tools, in fact. I mean, I think surgical progress in the area of ICH is really rapidly progressing, and I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that we'll have some tools that will help mechanically disrupt that clot, remove it, remove the blood, hopefully improve the inflammation. Right now, when we see these patients, they often look terrible because of the way ICH works. And so I think the parting shot for me is, you know, don't let that fool you. Let the patient surprise you. Um, they may look terrible, but the brain is a, is a long game when it comes to healing. So if you can get them through that rough, you know, initial hours, days, sometimes weeks, you know, I, I think it's, it's often worth doing um, because uh, ICH is survivable and survivable with uh, a good outcome in many, many patients. Kyle, Brandon, thank you both so much for spending this time with us today. Uh, this has been a podcast of the National Stroke Education Center. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, MCRAIG International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.